listening to audio from Faith Church, located on the north side of Indianapolis. If you'd like to check out more information about our church and ministry, please visit faithchurchindy.com. Today's reading is selected portions from Lamentations chapter 2. Feel free to close your eyes and listen or uh, try to follow along. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. The Lord determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more, and her prophets find no vision from the Lord. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? The Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Let your heart cry out to the Lord. O wall of the daughter of Zion, let, st- let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the night watches. Pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. Look, O Lord, and see, with whom have you dealt thus? Should children eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. 
and on the day of the anger of the Lord, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. I've got, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, two stacks of books up here. This stack is all of the commentaries that I have on Lamentations. Uh, it's, um, there's some autobiography in here of people who have uh, faced their grief under a lament framework. There's Hebrew exegesis, there's vocabulary studies, there's form critical analyses of the poetry of Lamentations. There's all sorts of fascinating theory and ideas and discussions uh, in these books. The second stack is about three-eighths of an inch tall, uh, just one book. This is the one that is not theory. It's designed to take you through lament yourself. I bought it. Uh, my wife and I both bought this uh, devotional because over the course of the last year, is, is we've been talking and just realizing that we still uh, carry a lot of grief from our ongoing infertility struggles and just the ongoing health effects that, that will continue into the future for her especially. Uh, so we bought this devotional, and I, I took it with me on a vacation to Florida. I figured Beachside is the best place to figure out how to lament, and I opened it up and started reading. First couple pages were great. You know, there's like an outline of what a, a kind of a lament contains. There were uh, the, an annotated even example from Psalm uh, 71, I think it is. And then it moves on from there with a sample of how you would write your own lament. And then I got to page 17 where it says, In this study, I want to lament. And there's a blank spot. that I'm supposed to fill in. And I got to this page and I closed the book and I put it back in my bag and I've been carrying it around for five months. I've tried going back to it over and over again uh, over the last five or six months or so since Thanksgiving and every time I get back to it and I, I face those words in the blank spot on the page, I start getting I start getting anxious, my heart starts racing, um, I start, you know, cotton mouthed, and I feel like I'm going to pass out and throw up at the same time, which would not be good. Uh, start to feel like my blood pressure's dropping. You know, all of, all of that, um, tears are about to come, and if I, if I really face this and let it come, I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I'm going to lose control of my emotions, and so I close it and put it away. But I'm, I'm starting to wonder if perhaps my unwillingness to name my grief, to, to write it down, to admit that it's real, is making it so that I can't actually learn to live with my grief. I was talking to my spiritual director the other day on this topic, and, and I told him, you know, I, I just keep thinking if I hold it inside and pretend it's not there, uh, then I'll just die bitter, and that's easier. 
And, and, and he laughed and then said, is that, is that really what you want? Lamentations chapter 2 calls us to name, identify, admit our grief and our sorrow so that we can begin to lament, so that we can begin to move from uh, the, the grief that is paralyzing, that keeps bubbling up in unhealthy ways and, and coming out in relationships and hurting people we love. Lamentations 2 calls us to name our grief in front of the destroyer and find comfort. Turn to Lamentations 2 if you haven't already. Um, I think it starts on something like uh, page 815 or something like that in your... Uh, yeah, page 815 of the Black Bible underneath the seat in front of you. If you have uh, the Faith Church app, if you want to read along in another translation, you could pull it up there and then hit the translations button and pick from one of 700 different languages uh, if you're that multilingual. Uh, or if... We've got the journals. We ran out last week. We bought more. There are more available down at the Welcome Center. So if you didn't get one, you can run down there and grab one. Lamentations chapter 2, we are going to walk through uh, some of the details of this chapter because we need to feel the force of what the poet narrator is calling the remnant left behind in Jerusalem to do in facing their grief. Chapter 1, Pastor Jeff led us through last week. Chapter 1 was this yo-yo back and forth between grief and guilt. We had the, the poet narrator, the, the worship leader in this liturgy of grief, um, articulating, giving voice to the congregation's feelings. And then we had the congregation herself personified by uh, Lady Jerusalem, this female voice. We had the city herself confessing guilt and then back to grief and back to guilt Again, But still, every time Lady Jerusalem prays in chapter 1, she says, where am I supposed to find comfort? Where do I find comfort for my grief? And Lamentations chapter 2 begins to answer that question. So let's walk through it as, as we read this poet narrator telling Lady Jerusalem the only place to find comfort is from her destroyer. Let's jump right in. Look at uh, verse 1. These first five verses uh, are a, a barrage, a litany of, of uh, grim verbs describing God's actions, but it all comes underneath this heading of God's anger. Verse 1, very beginning, how the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. The Lord in his anger has set Zion, the daughter of Zion, the city, Jerusalem, under a cloud. And then look at these verbs that describe what God has done. He has cast down. He has not remembered. He has swallowed up. He has broken down. He has brought down to the ground. He has cut down. He has withdrawn his hand. He has burned like a flaming fire. He has bent his bow. He has killed. He has poured out his fury. He has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up. He has swallowed up. He has laid in ruins. He has multiplied mourning and lamentation. The, 
these are the kind of verses that when uh, we say afterwards, this is the word of the Lord, it's kind of hard to respond, thanks be to God, isn't it? <laughs> I don't know if you felt that earlier, but I felt, I, I don't want to say thanks for words like this because it, it, it doesn't get any easier. The next five verses, six through 10, systematically walk through exactly how God did all the stuff in the first five verses. Verse six, he lays waste the temple, his booth, his meeting place. He's made Zion forget festival and Sabbath. He spurned the king and the priest. He scorned his altar. He's disowned his sanctuary, delivered into the hand of the enemy the walls of Jerusalem's palaces. The kingship and the temple priesthood that God set up, he has now swept away as easily as you sweep a chessboard after the end of a game. These sacred institutions that God has established, he has spurned. He's gotten rid of them, and, and verse 7 ends with this ironic note that the, the clamor, the raucous clamor of the enemy destroying the temple, if you closed your eyes, it sounded a lot like the, the pilgrims on their way to a festival shouting for joy. Verse 8 continues, it pictures God as a demolition worker, measuring out exactly where to put his explosives as he destroys the wall, the ramparts and the walls lament, metaphorically. And then in, in verse 9, every possible audience, all of society suffers the same fate Verse 9, her kings and princes are among the nations. They've been exiled and ultimately slaughtered. The prophets find no vision from the Lord. God is silent. The elders of the city sit on the ground in silence with ceremonial mourning, dust and sackcloth and ashes. The young women of Jerusalem, perhaps not as well versed in the ceremonial rites, have just simply bowed their heads to the ground. Young and old, rich and poor, powerful and powerless, male and female, all are leveled in the ground, destroyed and swallowed up by God, by Yahweh, by the covenant God, by the God of Psalm 23. He has destroyed his people. And why? Well, we found out right away in verse 1. The Lord in his anger. And there are a lot of phrases used to describe God's anger throughout the book of Lamentations. His fierce anger, his burning anger, his hot anger. But verse 6 has a, a unique description of God's Anger, and I like that the ESV translates it differently from all the other uses of anger in this book because it gives us a, a bit of a, a hint into the, the nature of the anger of God that, is, that has led to the destruction of Jerusalem and of the nation of Judah. Verse 6, in his fierce indignation, he has spurned king and priest. Fierce indignation or indignant 
anger maybe is another way to put it. If you are marking up your Bible or marking up these journals, which if you're not marking it up, I don't know why you bought a journal. Uh, if you're marking it up, like circle that, put a star on it, underline it, uh, highlight it, do whatever it takes to remind yourself of that phrase, those two words, fierce indignation. Because it's a different kind of anger than we're used to thinking about. One pastor puts it this way. He writes, our experience of anger is most often with its neurotic forms. I think he means in ourselves and in others. We have only occasional encounters with mature, healthy anger. Anger as an honest manifestation of revealed love or offended righteousness is rare among us. He says, we encounter anger mostly as a kind of petty irritation, uh, a tantrum, a mean streak coming out when we don't get our way. But in the Hebrew scriptures, anger, God's anger is never described with that kind of uh, capriciousness. Uh, God's anger is never a spoiled tantrum. It's always an intermittent, limited response to his people's sin. Remember this, in, in the Hebrew Scriptures, God's love endures forever. His anger is only momentary. God's love is his chosen disposition towards all. His anger is a response to our sin, and in this case, a response to the adulterous sin, the covenant-breaking sin of his people, his chosen people that he's, he's chosen and given his grace to. The anger that comes through in Lamentations is a reaction to the selfishness, the sinfulness, the adultery of his people. Verse 17 actually makes that clear. If you flip ahead here a little bit, verse 17, and in my, uh, my journal here, I drew a big box around the entire verse because this verse is key to understanding the entirety of this chapter and how this chapter flows into the entire narrative of the book of Lamentations. Verse 17, the Lord has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. And every commentator sees this as a reference to portions of Scripture like Leviticus 26, Deuteronomy 28. We don't have time to read the entirety of those chapters, so just a little quote. God says, if you will not listen to me and will not do all these commandments, the commandments that have to do with the keeping of the covenant, then I will set my face against you and you shall be struck down before your enemies. That's one line of about 80 verses that are similar. See, the, the poet narrator, the grief leader in this lament is encouraging Lady Jerusalem and, and through her, the, the congregation that is present at this, uh, this grief liturgy is encouraging them to understand their suffering in light of what God has already said, in light of who God has revealed himself to be, in light of what God said he would do according to 
the covenant. And so to see their situation, to see their, their suffering as a result of their own sinfulness, their own breaking of the covenant relationship. What Leviticus and Deuteronomy uh, spelled out as law, what Isaiah and Jeremiah and other prophets predicted as future lamentations sets down as cold, hard, historical fact. That God has done for Jerusalem what he said he would do. And now the surviving community and the community in exile have to come to terms with the fact that their covenant God is the one who has destroyed them. Now, knowing that, that Yahweh is the destroyer, knowing the source of their sorrow and of their grief doesn't necessarily make the grief experience easier in that moment. In fact, if you turn to verse 11, the worship leader, the poet narrator himself, breaks in with his own experience of grief. Verse 11, my eyes are spent with weeping. I've cried so much, I don't have any tears left. My stomach churns, my bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because of the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. There's anguish, there's stomach-wrenching sobs and anxiety. There's this very the description of bile being poured out onto the ground. The Hebrew word there is liver, which is probably metaphorical because liver was the seat of emotions to the Hebrew mind. We would say the heart, they would say the liver. So probably we're supposed to read this as my heart is pouring its emotions out on the ground, not that there was actually a rupture of some sort. Uh, But he's weeping, he's churning, his heart is pouring itself out on the ground, there's, there's this full-orbed physical and emotional and, and spiritual grief brought on by a series of uh, one chaplain calls almost PTSD-like flashbacks. Verse 12, he flashes back to the day of well, the days after the destruction where uh, the babies and the infants are starving, dying of starvation in the aftermath. Verse 14, he flashes back to the, in comparison, seemingly happy days before the fall of the city when they were surrounded by forces, enemy forces, but the prophets kept saying, no, God's on our side. He's coming through, just you wait. A false message that brought false and empty hope. He's flashing back to the days of the conquest itself when the marauding armies made their way in in verses 15 and 16. All those who pass along the way clap their hands in joy, in mockery, and in contempt. They hiss and wag their heads. The enemies rail against you with joy. 
His own grief is fueled by these memories that come back unbidden as he flashes back to the moments of grief, the moments of sorrow that, that cause the current uh, pain that he's experiencing. But interestingly, even in the midst of those flashbacks, he comes back to the present in verse 13 with a desire uh, to comfort others who are going through the same suffering that he is going through. Often that's a, an evidence of a maturely handled grief, that those who have gone through a grief uh, come out of it, come through it on the other side with a desire to bring comfort to those who are grieving in a similar way. I was sitting with a friend a few months ago whose uh, life story contains many of the same sorrows and griefs that mine does. We were just spending time together lamenting the, the future that never was. And he said before his loss, there was no room for empathy in his soul. Uh, but the loss that he experienced, experienced tore a hole in his soul so large that only bitterness or empathy could fill it. And 20 years of handling his grief well has allowed empathy to fill that space where now he can reach out to others who have experienced something similar. This is what the poet narrator is trying to do in verse 13 when he flashes back to the present and he, and he looks at the city. He says, what can I say for you? To, to what can I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? In other words, he's saying, I have no words. I've never seen anything like this. I don't know what to compare this to in order to assure you that, yes, you will come through this. There is something on the other side of this grief. He says, words fail me. There's no comparison I can make. There's no comfort I can bring. I don't have anything to say. He's like the friend who handles your own grief well when he comes alongside you and simply says, I'm sorry. There's nothing more to say. There's nothing more that can be said because uh, even as the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem is in itself a, a historic event that is, has no comparison in the lives of the individuals who are going through it. Still, their, their experience of that grief, their experience of that sorrow, I mean, it's all united by the same theme, destruction and destitution, but every personal experience of grief is a variation on that theme. It's as individual as the person carrying the sorrow. So even this leader who has gone through this sorrow himself still goes to them and says, I have no words. Your grief is as unique as you. All I can say is, I'm sorry. There are no words for, at the end of verse 13, your ruin the Hebrew word behind that could also be translated wound. Your wound is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? The leader himself recognizes that in the face of the destroying God, there is no comfort that he himself can bring. 
So he's left with the question, well, then where does comfort come from? If he can't bring comfort, then from where does comfort come? So he ends verse 13 with this somewhat rhetorical question, your ruin, your wound is as vast as a sea. Who can heal you? Who can heal a wound that big? And then the, the next four verses are uh, four options, four potential comforters. The prophets? No. No, they've been false from the start. The passersby? No, not likely. They're mocking contemptuous. The enemies? Could you find comfort from your enemy? No, they say, we have destroyed her. This is the day we've been waiting for. It's finally here. No, there's no comfort from the enemies. Verse 17, the Lord? No. He's simply doing what he said he would do. Except, verse 18 follows verse 17. I learned that in seminary. Verse 18 follows immediately after verse 17. It says, their heart cried out to the Lord. Actually, there's a debate here about the text and what it should say. The best translation is probably, let your heart cry out to the Lord. Verse 17 said, the God has done, the Lord has done, Yahweh, the covenant God, has done what he said he would do. He carried out his word, which he commanded long ago, and he has thrown you down without pity. He's made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Therefore, let your heart cry out to God. Let your heart cry out to God, O wall of the daughter of Zion, the, the wall kind of standing in for the, for the whole city, standing in for Lady Jerusalem herself. Let your tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest. Give your eyes no respite. Don't take a break from mourning, but let your heart cry out to the Lord. Arise, get up, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him. There's a shift in tone between the first 17 verses and then 18 to the end of the chapter. The first 17 verses were set in a specific uh, Hebrew poetic meter that kind of limps along. It has this, this feeling of not being balanced. It, it kind of gives a poetic movement to the lament. But verse 18 shifts, and now the meter, the poetry, the tone, and the vocabulary are all reminiscent of the Psalms of lament. 1 through 17 is a funeral dirge. 18 through 22 is a lament, like we would read in the Psalms. God enters into the picture as a source of healing and as a source of comfort. As the, the poet na narrator says to the, the people of Jerusalem, to Lady Jerusalem herself, uh, cry your eyes out. Yes, that's good. You can't sleep. I know, get up when you can't sleep. 
pour out your emotions, but for as many tears as you shed, there should be as many words in the presence of God, words of you naming your sorrow, describing your grief, standing before God and saying, this is why I hurt. This is what you have done. This is what you have allowed to happen to me. Cry your eyes out. But when you do so, cry your heart out to God in words. Think about what's at stake here. If the the poet narrator is correct in his theological interpretation of their suffering, if he's correct in reading the destruction of Jerusalem as evidence of the Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28 covenant stipulations, if he's correct, and I think he is, then the only way forward for the people of Jerusalem, for the people of Judah, of Israel, is to turn back to God. God is not some impersonal force. Uh, some, this, this isn't just the, the machinations of various geopolitical forces. God is not like when you're changing a light bulb or replacing an electrical outlet, and oops, you forgot to turn the power off, and you get a zap, right? You get zapped, there's nothing you can do about it except be less dumb next time. God is not a live wire waiting for us to cross him. He's a king who in, even in his anger can be appealed to for mercy, for forgiveness, Judah has not fallen under some impersonal force. Judah has wronged the king of the universe. And so the only way out of that situation is to go to the destroyer for comfort. This week I was talking about this sermon and these ideas and especially this very counterintuitive idea that the one who has destroyed Israel as the one in whom they will find comfort. I was sharing this with my wife this week, and she said, oh, that makes total sense. She said, when we were really in the immediacy of our grief around infertility, she reminded me, I'd block this out, most of our prayers were very simple. They went something like this. Dear God, I know I'm supposed to be talking to you, but right now I don't like you very much. I will try again tomorrow. Amen. And we did that for a couple of years. Lady Jerusalem does almost the exact same thing. The poet narrator calls her to prayer. Lift your hands to God. And she prays in verses 20, 21, and 22. Verse 20, look, O Lord, and see. Acknowledge what I'm going through. With whom have you dealt thus? In other words, have you ever treated anyone like this? And then the rest of the prayer. You did this, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this, and you did this. And she doesn't even say amen at the end.
look, God, have you ever acted like this towards anyone? Look at the list of things that you've done. These atrocities that have happened, the, the, the stuff that I've seen with my own eyes that no one should have to see. You caused all this. And then the prayer just ends. Now, it's tempting to read this prayer as, well, she still doesn't get it. And, and maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. We see the character of Lady Zion develop throughout the book of Lamentations as she responds to the sermon that is to come in the next chapter, and then as the congregation together gives voice to their lament in chapter 5. We do see some progression of understanding, but I think what's happening here in these three verses is that Lady Zion is standing in front of her destroyer and saying to him, this is what you've done. which is the absolutely necessary first step in learning to lament, in facing grief. If there's one thing that you get out of this morning, if there's one thing you write down or remember, I want you to remember this. You, me, we have to name our grief if we're going to be able to put any sort of boundary, any sort of frame, any sort of limits to it. We have to name it and frame it. we got to name our grief in order to set boundaries around it. Your ruin, your wound is as vast as an ocean, and all grief when it is disconnected from historical, factual, like time and place and date experiences, when our, our grief becomes removed from the reality of what's happening to us, and we just try to deal with it as some sort of uh, feeling untethered from the events that cause it, then our grief is as vast as the ocean. It is unbounded and chaotic until we can put a name to it. And it begins to be bounded in, framed, and limited. When you came in and you got a bulletin, there were these cards in that bulletin. Pull those out now. Grab a pen or a pencil. It's time for us to follow the example of Lady Jerusalem and verbalize our lament. Write down our grief. I'd say make it real, but really what we're doing is acknowledging that it is real by putting pen to paper and making it permanent. God knows I need to. Now, what about you? What do you need to lament? Is it the loss of the loss of a marriage, the loss of a child or of a parent, the loss of a friend, a, a son or daughter who has walked away from God? 
Is it the loss of a future you hoped you would see and you now know will never come to pass? Is it the loss of a job? Or what seems to be, with age, the inevitable slow slide into irrelevance? As all of us younger ones are too busy running forward to look back to you. Do you need to lament the constant pressure you feel to perform, to measure up, to make somebody happy, to make somebody proud, maybe somebody who's not even here anymore? And so you, know, you will never hear those words, I'm proud of you. But you're carrying it every day of your life and everything you do. What do you need to lament? What do you need to write down? Every sorrow, every grief is its as individual as the person who carries it. Your grief, even if you would use the exact same words that I used for any one of mine, your grief is unique. It is yours. It's a privilege. And there is dignity in how you suffer with your sorrow and with your grief. When we stand before God and say, this is what you've done. It's at the moment of deepest despair where a hint of hope comes in. Verse 20, look, Lord, and see. Acknowledge what I'm going through. Have you ever treated anyone like this? Of course, we're on this side of the cross. And when we hear that question, have you ever treated anyone like you're treating me right now? We hear God responding, actually... Yeah. The same prophet who predicted the destruction of Jerusalem predicts in chapter 53 that a servant would come, a suffering servant. And he said, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken and smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. God, have you ever treated anyone like you're treating me? Like you're treating us? And he says, yes. God says, in Jesus, I myself entered into the world, into your suffering, into your sorrow and your grief and your lament, so that for eternity, 
there would be no more sorrow and no more pain and no more tears because all things will be made new. Until that day, we learn to live with our grief. Not get over it, not get past it, but to live with it until all things are made new. Please pray with me. God, you have not forsaken us. You have not forsaken us even when it feels like you are not there, that you are silent, that you are not speaking. You have not forsaken us. We know because we look back to the cross and we see Jesus entering into our sorrow, carrying our grief, bearing our pain on himself. Our mocking and our scorn was laid on him. You are not blind or ambivalent to our pain and to our suffering. But you have yourself entered into it. In in your son, in Jesus Christ, you, the destroyer, have destroyed yourself that we may be comforted. And now... Right now, it feels as if that new day that you have promised will one day dawn, that new day is so far off, we can barely see it. But I pray that you would bring comfort from the consummation of all things into our hearts right now, this morning, that our grief, our sorrow can be transformed into lament. That in your presence, we can weep pour out our hearts to you and with words give voice to our pain and invite you into it. We pray that you would work in us, in Jesus' name, the man of sorrows. We pray. Amen.